Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Craig Kelberg. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that... I screwed it up. God damn it. (laughs) My brother is the worst co-host ever. (laughs) Not only... Does he have to play the I'm copying you game, but he can't even do that right? Well, it was a lot of words. (laughs) And I've never heard you say it before, ever. Yes, that's true, because you certainly (laughs) haven't hosted the show before or ever listened to an episode. No, never. Neither of those things. Yeah. Um, Actually, I've only listened to a couple episodes of this show. Yeah, and none none of the parts where you say that. Yeah, no, I always I always skip the intro. Right. Um, because I'm sort of like, eh, I said it. I don't need to listen back to it. Right. And when I'm editing, I just sort of do it blind. I cut and paste things without <laughs> paying attention to what it's I'm like, doing. It's actually kind of amazing. Well, I, I am like, in, it's, I am it's a it's a very clean end product for Yeah, so what what I did is when I was um when I was building my personal character sheet, I uh, I shoved all of my extra stat points into lock. Ah. Yeah. So I don't have very many skills, but if I just do shit at random, it it usually turns out okay. That's great. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. hard to plan for anything, but right. But but things just happen to work out for no particular reason. But things tend to just sort of work out, and that's you know, it's it's cool. Um and uh I've been I've been mostly pretty happy with it. It's mostly good. pretty happy with it. I do wish that I had even basic levels of intelligence or charisma or strength or constitution constitution It'd be nice to at least be, be kind nice. of healthy yeah, yeah. but um <laughs> no I, I gave it all up for luck like my immune system is absolute garbage covid just keeps missing me right is and and apparently every other and disease every and other virus. disease yeah 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 it like it just a gust of wind hits and it just blows in another direction that's great yeah 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 so um if you have the opportunity, I, I would recommend it. It's actually worked out um, pretty well. Maybe next level, I'll, I'll next level dump some extra yeah. stats into. Yeah, yeah. It's a weird <laughs> min max choice, one that you don't read about very much. But um, right. give it a shot, see what happens. Well, especially since luck is not not a recurring trait in in a lot of. Uh, games it's not a traditional dungeons and dragons stat yeah right. i'm not entirely sure which system i'm playing in that allowed me to do that <laughs> but um i'm really glad i'm really glad they did because yeah. man it's it's worked out um worked out nicely all things considered that's good yeah hey listener how you doing um this has been one of our uh more niche market opens <laughs> <laughs> Talk about narrow casting. <laughs> so for the six people who enjoyed that joke, welcome to the show. Um, this is Campfire Classics, a literary comedy podcast, not a random role-playing game, what, real-life simulation? <laughs> yeah. Uh, VR role-playing game? VR role-playing game, Yeah. Um, please welcome behind the microphone, my brother, Craig Kelberg. Hello. Joining us once again, um, from the mythical land of Asheville, North Carolina. That exists only in legend. Yeah. It, and, it, and myth. Legend and, and myth. Yeah. Yeah. What's the difference between legend and myth? Uh, about like about two letters. <laughs> Yeah, two letters. Uh, I'm going to have to go ahead and disagree with you there. Uh, it's all the letters. Myth well, and legend have no letters in common. Well, true, but in terms of, I was speaking, I was thinking in terms of length. In terms of length. One syllable, One, two letters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no letters in common, though. Although a lot of, uh, a lot of material that goes into them in common. Right. Myth was, of course, a great game. Legend was not so great of a movie. I, so, I know there are a lot of big fans of that movie, um so continuing <laughs> so continuing our Tom Cruise not a fan cast from 2 weeks ago. 
I also haven't seen Legend, at least not all the way through. Wait, so how can you comment on Legend if you haven't seen it? All the way through. I've tried. Oh. I can comment <laughs> yeah. that it was bad in that I could not make it through. That's um, fair and reasonable, although <laughs> Tim Curry's devil character is pretty great. That's fair. So, uh, as I was saying, <laughs> this is a, uh, a literature and comedy podcast where typically what we do is um, sit around and bullshit for a while before I decide that we've alienated at least 70% of our listeners and then we switch over to um, reading a short story, which we have selected out of the public domain. Great and, tactic. And it's, it's a, well, what it ensures <laughs> is that... Um, the people who make it all the way to the story are like actually invested. Right. You know, I just want to make sure that we've got them. So in the interest of alienating just those last few listeners, um, sometimes I like to just talk about random crap that I have run across over the cup uh, over the course of the week. And a couple of days ago, I ran across this. David Bowie's 1974 album Diamond Dogs mm-hmm. was heavily inspired by the George Orwell novel 1984. There's even a song on the album called 1984, and most of the songs right. draw inspiration. But it goes a step further. Bowie was actually trying to create a stage musical based on the novel <laughs> 1984 and got deep into writing it. All right. But it was never actually produced because he was denied permission by Orwell's widow, Sonia. Maybe that's for the best, since I can't really imagine the musical being successful or good. But then again, Les Mis worked. Right. Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 is a musical adaptation of War and Peace. So sometimes bad ideas can work, which leads me to my um, my little question for the day. What is something unexpected or probably terrible that you would want to see turned into a musical or that you would want to turn into a musical yourself? Um, shop class. Come again? I, I think I think just like uh, an hour long musical that was just shop class. <laughs> um, just basically, you know, it's it's a guy teaching you how to make a chair, maybe. OK. And and there are students on stage that occasionally interrupt or get sent to detention or something wow shop class the musical uh so do you have working saws on stage maybe maybe like in the pit so like the saws are are like part of the oh well i imagine the musical saw would be a heavy (laughs) part of the orchestration right but like if you if you time it right like the of of the saws could be like a rhythmic introduction to some songs. Okay. How interactive is this musical? I mean, I want to learn how to make a chair. So, so I, I, I imagine I walk in and there's, there's like a workbench. In my, at at in, your seat? At my seat. <laughs> With a tiny little bandsaw. Yeah. <laughs> um, I ask because there's, there's actually, there's a musical that, um, that Heather got to work on last time she was on the cruise ship in, mm-hmm. on her previous contract called Wine Lovers the Musical, which is a musical wine tasting. I think, yeah, you, I heard about that. Um, and it is like the audience sits down at their tables and they have the wines that are going to be tasted in front of them. Awesome. And the musical is, it is a, it is a wine tasting with all of the information about the wines that you normally get right. with all of the, oh, here's why you swish it around. Here's why you smell it. Here's all of that crap. But it's also a three character musical. Right. Maybe it's a, maybe instead of like having a full workbench, cause that's a little unrealistic. You have, <laughs> you, have <laughs> you, you just have like small pieces of wood and maybe like, uh, like a Swiss army knife. <laughs> also, uh, no one under 18 is allowed. Um, and you have to sign this waiver. Yeah. <laughs> also, no one under 21 is allowed because we will be drinking. <laughs> <laughs> most dangerous musical to hit broadway wow dude i Eat like that, that spider-man i like that. <laughs> man i like that that is that's that's good that is um that is out of left field <laughs> that's a niche market right there yeah. 
Here I was thinking in terms of something like Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, the musical. Are you familiar with I'm not familiar with that. It's a story we read early on in this podcast. Maybe I am familiar with it though. And it is um, a Confederate officer is to be executed. So they tie a noose around his neck and push him off the bridge. And then the rest of his story is his planned escape flashing through his brain until he dies. Yep. So I was thinking something like that, but you just, I mean, man, you took I mean, it, you took it a whole other direction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean that like, that would also be awful and amazing depending on, <laughs> depending on how you, yeah, but man, wow. No, you <laughs> thank you. That answer put my wildest expectations to shame. I don't even know what to do with that. Um, so I'm just going to move on. Perfect. <laughs> um, Listeners here at Campfire Classics, in addition to pitching really terrible theater ideas, uh, what we do is cold read short stories that we discover from the public domain. We um, we read them sight unseen, so you are learning what happens right along with us, and uh, our reader gets to try to figure out what accents characters speak in, gets to try to decipher words that maybe haven't been written in English for over a hundred years. Um, we will occasionally look up anachronistic language and make fun of things that maybe were or maybe were not penis jokes when the story was first written, but certainly is now. Uh, And this week, I have a story selected for Craig to read, but first, I'm going to clue you in with just a few little fun facts. Fun facts. That's a good song. Uh, (laughs) Hey, musical check-in. Have you written the first album from from your, what was it, goth acoustic EDM album yet i i i have not done that yet uh it is it i have actually like in my head thrown around a couple ideas of of how i would go about doing it and i am genuinely planning on following through on writing at least a song but i just haven't had the the downtime all right well i will keep pestering you over the weeks to make sure that we get a copy of it to share with the listeners when it's finished i'm pretty sure i have another 24 hours before i hit the two week mark from when when when, that episode was recorded recorded yeah so i've got i've I've got like 20 maybe 48 i don't remember if it was saturday or sunday when we recorded yeah but I, i think i think you're probably right yeah Um, Anyway, this week's story is from one of those authors who there isn't a lot of information on. Uh, A Scottish writer who worked mostly as a journalist and playwright named Andrew Halliday. He was born in Banffshire, Banffshire, I don't know, somewhere in Scotland. In 1830, went to college and university in Aberdeen. His father died when he was 14, and when he was 19, he moved to London, where he quickly became an in-demand writer, working for legit magazines and newspapers, tabloids, and literary periodicals. So, sort of covering all the bases. Freelancing all of the best and worst things you could do with writing. Um, (laughs) By the 1850s, he was working mostly in the theater, Uh, writing plays he got a fair amount of success doing that especially with his farces and burlesques people love farces and naked people that's this is true can we turn woodshop the musical into a farcical burlesque yes i i'm mildly concerned at the notion of a um farce in a shop in a wood shop just because of all the saws um but if you're not having functional saws on stage that's true the functional saws are all in the pit and in the audience that's that's fair yeah (laughs) and the burlesque basically writes itself as people's costumes get caught in the onstage saws brilliant love it yes we're doing this (laughs) Um, So anyway, he became pretty popular. In fact, he was a favorite of Charles Dickens, um, with whom uh, he collaborated on occasion. And the story that you'll be reading today is from a collection that includes one of Dickens' more famous short stories, The Signal Man. Andrew Halliday started experiencing softening of the brain in 1873. Does not sound good. um, Which isn't great. Basically, it's it's, uh, kind of... 
catch-all phrase for mental decline, dementia, those sorts of things. Uh, And he died in 1877. So... Like I said, not a ton of details out there about him, um, but that's that's kind of what you run into when you're dealing with not the big famous names from 200 years ago. Right. Uh, anyway, this week you'll be reading The Engine Driver from the 1866 book Mugby Junction. Ooh. Let's start this fire. The Engine Driver by Andrew Holiday or Halliday. Holiday. Andrew Christmas. (laughs) I like that. Perfect. Altogether? Well, altogether since 1841, I've killed seven men and boys. (laughs) That is a start. That is a strong opening line. It ain't many in all those years. Well, I don't know how... So this was written in 1866, so that's 25 years. Mm -hmm. Not for nothing, but I have been alive for uh, 37 years and haven't killed that many. Yeah, me either. Um, All right, so... Wow. He has a different... sense of the worth of a human life. Yeah, his his standard for what constitutes not many is... (laughs) Interesting. Alright. These startling words he uttered in a serious tone as he leaned against the station wall. Yeah, startling words. He was a thick-set, ruddy-faced man with coal-black eyes, the whites of which were not white, but a brownish-yellow. Gross. And apparently scarred and seemed as if they had been operated upon. They were eyes that had worked hard in looking through wind and weather. He was dressed in a short black pea jacket and grimy white canvas trousers and wore on his head a flat black cap. There was no sign of levity in his face. No, it's because he's killed seven people. (laughs) Right? His look was serious, even to sadness, and there was an air of responsibility about his whole bearing which assured me that he spoke in earnest. Yes, sir. I have been for five and twenty years a locomotive engine driver, and in all that time, I've only killed seven men and boys. People trying to rob the engine? Or trying to commit suicide and jumping in front of the engine? Um, why in old-timey times did they say their numbers backwards? It's twenty-five. Why five and twenty? Um, why do we say it? The way we do. Because I say 20, and so you know, oh, okay, big number, and then five to clarify exactly what. Maybe they enjoyed doing math, doing, like, very basic arithmetic all the time. <laughs> so, five plus 20. Five 25, plus 20, Five it. and 20, 25 years. Okay, yeah, yeah, cool. That's that's what I'm going to go with. Six and 20 and 200 and 3,000. Uh, 3,226. I guess I wasn't listening to the numbers I was saying. (laughs) Perfect. Math. All right. Uh, I've only killed seven men and boys. There's not many of my mates as can say as much for themselves. Steadiness, sir. Steadiness and keeping your eyes open is what does it. When I say seven men and boys, I mean my mates. Stokers, porters, and so forth. I don't count passengers. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) What? Don't count passengers. What is that? Oh, God. This is horrifying. I am never riding a train again. (laughs) How did he become an engine driver? My father, he said, was a wheelwright in a small way and lived in a little cottage by the side of the railway, which runs betwixt Leeds and Selby. It was the second railway laid down in the kingdom, the second after the Liverpool and Manchester, where Mr. Huskisson was killed, as you may have heard on, sir. When the trains rushed by, we young'uns used to run out to look at them, and hooray! Cheer? Yeah, Yeah. we used to run out to look at them, and hooray! Yeah, alright. We'd go out and, and 
you know, throw confetti as the trains went by. Yeah, I've never seen hooray as a verb. To hooray. I hooray. You hooray. We all hooray. For he, he, she hoorays. They hooray-ah. We hooray-on. You all hooray-at. Perfect. Past participle. <laughs> hooray-ated. Conjugating Her- verbs is Hooray-ated. Hooray-ated. We hooray the trains. You rated the trains? No, we hooray-ated the trains. Oh, Why God. would you berate the trains? <laughs> it ran over my cat. <laughs> Killed six or seven men. Uh, anyhow, we went out and hooray Uh, I noticed the driver turning handles and making it go, and I thought to myself, it would be a fine thing to be an engine driver and have the control of a wonderful machine like that. Before the railway, the driver of the mail coach was the biggest man I knew. I thought I should like to be the driver of a coach. We had a picture in our cottage of George III in a red coat. I always mixed up the driver of the mail coach, who had a red coat too, with the king. Only he had a low-crowned, broad-brimmed hat, which the king hadn't. In my idea, the king couldn't be a greater man than the driver of the mail coach. Sure. No, a broad-brimmed hat and a crown are basically the same thing. I like to think it actually was the king, and he was just in disguise. But it was like a Superman-style disguise, where it was like, oh, I take my glasses off or put my glasses... But instead it was like, I take my crown off, I put a hat on. I put a hat on and you can't tell I'm the king. Exactly. Maybe it was a Prince and the Pauper situation where the king and the the postman just switched places. Yeah. I think this makes sense. I'm so tired of working hard. I'm so tired of being the king. Hey, want to switch? Okay. Love it. I had always a fancy to be a head man of some kind. When I went to Leeds once, I saw a man conducting an orchestra. I thought I should like to be the conductor of an... Man, okay, he keeps saying A instead of an, and it trips me up every time. It's because you're reading his speech as a character. I know, okay. I'm going to try So it. it's, it's probably something more like, and I thought I should like to be the conductor of an orchestra. Right. Yeah, okay. He's got a bit of a... Lower class accent than you're giving him. I... So, if it's going to trip you up, do a voice, is what I'm saying. I don't... Dear listener, I'm just trying to get my brother to do a voice. <laughs> but but it's all his dialogue. It'll be that for the whole time. Dear listener, <laughs> I know that. I think it will be funny. At least while I'm watching him squirm, I might hate it when I edit this later. When I went to... (laughs) Like nothing came out. When I went went to Leeds and saw a man conducting an orchestra, I thought I should like to be a conductor of an orchestra. When I went home, I made myself a baton and went about the fields conducting an orchestra. It wasn't... (laughs) I love... I love that he just, like, when we were growing up, we got sticks and would sword fight. Yep. When he was growing up, he got a stick and just pretended to direct an orchestra. I'm going to conduct the grass. I love it. It wasn't there, of course, but I pretended it was. At another time, a man with a whip and a speaking trumpet on the stage outside a show took my fancy, and I thought I should be, uh, I I thought I should like to be him. But when the train came, the engine driver put them all in the shade, and I was resolved to be an engine driver. It wasn't long before I had to do something to earn my own living, though I was only a young'un. My father died suddenly. He was killed by thunder and lightning while standing under a tree out of the rain. (laughs) Damn! And mother couldn't keep us all. So she sold us. Makes sense. The day after my father's burial, I walked down to the station and said I wanted to be an engine driver. The station master laughed a bit, said I was for be- said I was for beginning early, said I was for beginning early, but that I was not quite big enough yet. Said it was for beginning early. That's why he was laughing at him. Maybe? No, I don't, I have no mm-hmm. idea. Oh, no. Said I was for, for beginning early, like, wow, you're you're getting sort of young, aren't you? But oh, yeah. uh, no, it's going to take a little bit. Oh, you're, you're for beginning early. All yeah. right. It's a phrase I haven't heard. It's weird. 
I like it. It's also one I haven't heard, but it makes sense. Cool. He gave me a penny and told me to go home and grow and come again and come again in 10 years time. I didn't dream of danger then. If I couldn't be an engine driver, I was determined to have something to do about an engine. So, as I could get nothing else, I went on board a Humber steamer and broke up coals for the stoker. That was how I began. From that, I, be- I became a stoker, first on board a boat, then on a locomotive. Then, after two years' service, I became a driver on the ferry line which passed our cottage. Aww. My mother and my brothers and sisters came out to look at me the first day I drove. They hurrayed me. Hurrayed is what they said. That's not in here. I was watching for them, and they was watching for me. And they waved their hands and hurrahed. <laughs> and I waved my hand to them. I had the steam well up and was going at a rattling pace, and rare proud I was that minute. Never was so proud in my life. Uh-oh, that sounds like a setup for a great fall. I as swear, pride if, he run, if, if he runs over his family, I'm going <laughs> to... So that's upset. the seven right there. <laughs> when a man has a liking for a thing, it's as good as being clever. In a very short time, I became one of the best drivers on the line. That was allowed. I took a pride in it, you see, and I liked it. Now, I didn't know much about the engine scientifically, as you call it, but I could put her to rights if anything went out of gear. That is to say, if there was nothing broken. But I couldn't have explained how the steam worked inside. Starting an, starting an engine, it's just like drawing a drop of gin. You turn a handle, and off she goes. <laughs> That's the guy I want driving my train. Yeah. Tell you what, driving a train is like drinking gin. You know... It is impressive he's only killed seven. (laughs) All right. How do you feel if an airline pilot were like, oh, yeah, taking off. It's just like pouring a beer. (laughs) Excuse me? I hope you never get those two confused. I hope you never say that to anyone ever again. (laughs) Then you turn the handle the other way, put on the brakes, and you stop her. There's not much more, more in it so far. It's no good being scientific and knowing the principle of the engine inside. No good at all. Fitters, who know all the ins and outs of the engine, make the worst drivers. That's well known. They know too much. It's just as I've heard of a man with regard to his inside. If he knew what a complicated machine it is, he would never eat, or drink, or dance, or run, or do anything, for fear of busting something. So it is with fitters. But us, but us, as are not troubled with such thoughts, we go ahead. Ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. That is a long way of saying ignorance is bliss. Yeah, don't educate yourself. I am so good at my job because I don't know shit about how it works. <laughs> Press the button and a good thing happens. I don't want to know why. But starting an engine's one thing and driving of her is another. Anyone, a child almost can turn on the steam and turn it off again. But it ain't everyone that can keep an engine well on the road. No more than it ain't everyone who can ride a horse properly. On the road? Aren't they on tracks? Well, yeah, but you still got to keep the engine going. I'm guessing it's an odd turn of phrase and not (laughs) he takes his train off the tracks and onto the road. He's got an off-road train. (laughs) Well, no, he's got an on-road train. He's got an off-track train. Off-track. Right. Oh, I'm sorry, I've gotten off track. Oh no, it's okay. No, no, no. I mean, I've got, I've driven off the track. I'm gonna have to fix this. <laughs> okay. Worst engineer ever. Uh. Well, and there's not a steering wheel, so like, you're really impressive engineer. Yeah. Then. Um. No more than it ain't everyone who can ride a horse properly. It is much the same thing. If you gallop a horse right off for a mile or two, you take the wind out of him, and for the next two mi- and the, for the next mile or two, you must let him trot or walk. So it is with the engine. If you put on too much steam to get over the ground at the start, you exhaust the boiler, 
and then you'll have to crawl along till your fresh water boils up. The great thing in driving is to go steady, never to let your water get too low, nor your fire too low. It's the same thing with a kettle. He has a lot of comparisons. Yep. Life, life is, his life is metaphors. <laughs> well, if he spends all his time going, er, er, with the gin lever, like, yeah. he probably has a lot of time for thinking of metaphors. It's the same with the kettle. If you fill it up when it's about half empty, it soon comes to a boil again. But if you don't fill it up until the water's nearly out, it's a long time in coming to the boil again. Another thing, you should never make spurts unless you are detained and lose time. You should go up a incline and down a incline at the same pace. Sometimes a driver will waste his steam, and when he comes to a hill, he has scarcely enough to drag him up. When you're in a train that goes by... <laughs> I just realized what voice I'm doing. What voice are you doing? Thank goodness you've returned. <laughs> the innkeeper from Diablo. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Uh, when you're in a train that goes by fits and starts, you may be sure that there is a bad driver on the engine. That kind of driving frightens passengers dreadful. When the not as much as killing them does. <laughs> Just gonna put that out there. Well, they're they're not frightened if you're if they're dead. No, but the ones next to them are. That's true. <laughs> when the train, after rattling along, suddenly slackens speed when it ain't near a station, it may be in the middle of a tunnel. The passengers think there is danger, but generally it's because the driver has exhausted his steam. <laughs> I drove the Brighton Express four or five years before I come here. And the annuals, that is, the passengers who had annual tickets, always said they knew when I was on the engine because they wasn't jerked. Gentlemen used to say as they came onto the platform, Who drives today, Jim Martin? And when the guard told them yes, they said, All right. And took their seat quite comfortable. Huh, so now we know the name of this mass murderer. Jim Martin. Great name. But the driver never gets so much as a shilling, the guard comes in for all that, and he does nothing much. Few ever think of the driver. I dare say they think the train goes along of itself. Yet, if we didn't keep a sharp lookout, know our duty, and do it, they might all go smash at any moment. I used to make that journey to Brighton in 52 minutes. The papers said 49 minutes, but that was coming it a little too strong. I had to watch signals all the way. One every two miles. So that me and my stoker were on the stretch all the time doing two things at once, attending to the engine and looking out. I've driven on this line 81 miles and three quarters in 86 minutes. Miles? Yeah. Isn't he British? Scottish. Scottish? Yeah. They use miles? Um, the, yes. Okay. Hang on. Yep. Uh, because the, um, the British imperial system pounds and miles and all of that garbage that we currently use uh, was officially in use in Great Britain from 1824 until the adoption of the metric system in 1965. Oh, wow. So they didn't start using like grams and meters and kilometers huh. and that stuff until the 60s. Okay. So we're not that, we're only like 60 years behind the next dumbest country yeah <laughs> yeah there's something comforting in knowing that we're only the dumbest by six decades yeah i've driven on this line 81 miles and three quarters in 86 minutes there's no danger in speed if you have a good road a good engine and not too many coaches behind no we don't call them carriages we call them coaches that's actually pretty quick, assuming the British Imperial Mile is about the same as the, the mile that we use. He's just doing like 55 the whole way. Yeah. That's a pretty good clip in an old train. Yes. Oscillation means danger. If you're ever in a coach that oscillates much, tell of it at the first station and get it coupled up closer. Coaches, when they're too loose, are apt to jump or swing off the rails, and it's quite as dangerous when they're coupled up too close. There ought to be just space enough for the buffers to work easy. Passengers are frightened in tunnels, but there's less danger now in tunnels than anywhere else. 
We never enter a tunnel unless it's signaled clear. A train can be stopped wonderful quick, even when running express, if the guards act with the driver and clap on all the brakes promptly. Much depends upon the guards. One brake behind is as good as two in front. The engine, you see, loses weight as she burns her coals and consumes her water, but the coaches behind don't alter. We have a good deal of trouble with young guards. In their anxiety to perform their duties, they put on the brakes too soon so that sometimes we can scarcely drag the train into the station. When they grow older at it, they are not so anxious and don't put them on soon enough. It's no use to say, when an accident happens, that they did not put on the brakes in time. They swear they did, and you can't prove that they didn't. So, um, I don't mean to make a huge fuss, but this story started with him saying, I've killed seven people. Great start. Super, like... When are we going to talk about the killing seven people? Yeah, yeah. I'm starting to think he didn't mean to kill those seven people. Right? <laughs> like, I'm getting a sneaking suspicion it was an accident, and this isn't a story told by a mass-murdering psychopath at all. I know. <sighs> all right. Unless he's about to confess that he just gets fed up with the guards being shitty at doing their break yeah, duty, and so he throws them off. It's going to end with him saying, and you're number eight. <laughs> Do I think that the tapping of the wheels with a hammer is a mere ceremony? Well, I don't know exactly. I should not like to say. It's not often that the chaps find anything wrong. They may sometimes be half asleep when a train comes into a station in the middle of the night. You would be yourself. They ought to tap the axle box, but they don't. Many accidents take place that never get into the papers. Many trains full of passengers escape being dashed to pieces by next door to a miracle. Nobody knows anything about it but the driver and the stoker. I remember once, when I was driving on the eastern counties, going round a curve I suddenly saw a train coming along on the same line of rails. I clapped on the brake, but it was too late, I thought. Seeing the engine almost close upon us, I cried to my stoker to jump. He jumped off the engine almost before the words were out of my mouth. I was just taking my hand off the lever to follow when the coming train turned off on the points and the next instant the hind coach passed my engine by a shave. It was the nearest touch I ever saw. My stoker was killed. <laughs> Because he jumped off the wrong side and was hit by the oncoming train. In another half second, I should have jumped off and been killed too. What would have become of the train without us is more than I can tell you. Wow, that sounds like actually really bad decision making. <laughs> yeah. The only reason I survived is because I was too lazy to act more quickly. <sighs> Alright. It's because I... Wasn't fast enough in abandoning ship. <laughs> there are heaps of people run over that no one ever hears about. One dark night in the black country, me and my mate felt something wet and warm splash in our faces. That didn't come from the engine, Bill, I said. No, he said. It's something thick, Jim. It was blood. That's what it was. We heard afterwards that a Collier had been run over. When we kill any of our own chaps, we say as little about it as possible. It's generally, mostly always, their own fault. <laughs> no, we never think of danger ourselves. We're used to it, you see. But we're not reckless. I don't believe there's anybody, any body of men that takes more pride in their work than engine drivers do. We are as proud and as fond of our engines as if they were living things, as proud of them as a huntsman or a jockey is of his horse. And an, and an engine has almost as many ways as a horse. She's a kicker, a plunger, a roarer, or whatnot in her way. Put a stranger onto my engine, and he wouldn't know what to do with her. Yes, there's wonderful improvements in engines since the last great exhibition. Some of them take up their water without stopping. That's a wonderful invention, and yet as simple as A, B, C. There are water troughs at certain places lying between the rails. 
By moving a lever, you let down the mouth of a scoop into the water, and as you rush along, the water is forced into the tank at the rate of 3,000 gallons a minute. This feel like this is really feeling like a a like puff piece for the railway stations yeah. of <laughs> it it feels like a um like a recruitment <laughs> poster <laughs> come join the railways <laughs> there's very little chance you'll accidentally be murdered <laughs> sign up today a engine driver's chief anxiety is to keep time that's what he thinks of most of when I was driving the Brighton Express, I always felt like as if I was riding a race against time. I had no fear of the pace. What I feared was losing way and not getting into the minute. We have to give an, in an account of our time when we arrive. The company provides us with watches and we go by them. Before starting on a journey, we pass through a room to be inspected. That's to see if we are sober. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I like that. So the gin is already on board. Right. Clearly. But they don't say nothing to us. And a man who has a little gone might pass easy. <laughs> that's less good. That's less good. I've, I've known a stoker that had passed the inspection, come onto the engine as drunk as a fly, flop down among the coals, and sleep there like a dog for the whole run. I had to be my own stoker then. If you ask me if engine drivers are drinking men... I must answer you that they are pretty well. <laughs> it's trying work. One half of you cold as ice, the other half hot as fire. Wet one minute, dry the next. If ever a man had an excuse for drinking, that man's an engine driver. And yet I don't know if, a, if ever a driver goes upon his engine drunk. If he was to, the wind would soon sober him. Not soon enough for my taste. <laughs> and apparently it didn't happen for your stoker friend. So well, he wasn't a driver. He wasn't a driver. He was a stoker. His name was Brom. Stupid drunk Brom. I believe engine drivers, as a body, are the healthiest fellows alive. <laughs> are the All healthiest right. fellows alive. But they don't live long. The Which <laughs> would seem to... Be at odds with the Negate previous statement. what you just said. The cause of that, I believe to be the cold food and the shaking. By the cold food, I mean that an that engine driver never gets his meals comfortable. He's never at home to his dinner. When he starts away the first thing in the morning, he takes a bit of cold meat and a piece of bread with him for his dinner, and generally he has to eat it in the shed, for he mustn't leave his engine. This does not sound healthy at all. No, it doesn't. I, I'm going to go ahead and argue that if that's how you eat, if you're saying it's the cold and the food that is making you die early, that's not healthy. Yeah. You can understand how the jolting and shaking knocks a man up after a bit. The insurance companies won't take no, us... No, men can't get knocked up. That's genetically impossible. Uh, it was, you know, the 1800s. Things worked differently. Oh, did men used to have... Was it a seahorse thing? We hadn't discovered science yet. Ah. So, well, except we, that he, We hadn't invented science yet. Except that he talked about the science of the engine. We hadn't invented biology yet? <laughs> that scans. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure it doesn't, but... <laughs> no, biology hadn't been invented yet, so men could get pregnant. Perfect. Cool. You heard it here first. Maybe. Maybe, unless you already knew that. That's it is that is an interesting piece of historic data that you may have learned somewhere else first. That's true. Although if you did, I would be skeptical of the source. <laughs> but don't be skeptical of us. You can understand how the jolting and shaking knocks a man up after a bit. The insurance companies won't take us at ordinary rates. We're obliged to be foresters or old friends or that sort of thing where they ain't so pop particular. The wages of an engine driver average about eight shillings a day, but if he's a good schemer with his coals, yes, I mean if he e economizes his coals, he's allowed so much more. Some will- Oh, so like if you can get there without burning as much coal- We'll pay you extra we'll pay for you the- extra because you're not whipping through our resources. Right. Some will make from five to ten shillings a week that way. Oh, extra. Yeah. I was like, but he just said you make eight shillings a day. 
five to ten shillings a week sounds like a demotion. <laughs> That's a pay cut. I don't complain of the wages particular, but it's hard lines for such as us to have to pay income tax. The company gives an account of all our wages and we have to pay. It's a shame. Yeah, fuck taxes. <laughs> our domestic life, our life at home, you mean? Oh, that was a question. Our domestic life, our life at home, you mean? So there's clearly an interviewer right. who is just off camera, yeah. as it were. It's like in those behind-the-scenes interviews where the interviewer's off camera and they cut the questions. Maybe maybe this will be, uh, turn this into a video. Perfect. Do a video version of, of this story <laughs> as an interview. <laughs> I'll dress up as the, the old engine driver. And Perfect. And or, or you can do it and work and your Diablo innkeeper voice some more. <laughs> the strangest thing happened. The butcher. Uh, <laughs> well, as to that, we don't see much of our families. I leave home at half past seven in the morning and don't get back again until half past nine, or maybe later. The children are not up when I leave, and they've gone to bed again before I come home. This is about my day. Leave London at 8.45. Drive for four hours and a half. Cold snack on the engine step. See to engine. Drive back again. Clean engine. Report myself and home. Twelve hours hard and anxious work. And no comfortable victuals. 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 What's victuals? Victuals? Uh, it's going to be like food, but I'm going to look it up. Oh, I didn't need to look it up. Victual. Food. food. Or provisions. <laughs> Got it. Turkey and other savory victuals were served. Cool. Verb. Third person present. Oh, victualed. The ship wasn't even properly victualed. Got it. So it can be a verb. Just like hooray can be a verb. No comfortable victuals. Yes, our wives are anxious about us, for we never know when we go out if we'll come, ever come back again. Well, I mean, that's true every time you get out of bed. I, I suppose. We ought to go home the minute we leave the station and report ourselves to those that are thinking on us and depending on us. But I'm afraid we don't always. Perhaps we go first to the public house. And perhaps you would, too, if you were in charge of an engine all day. Long. All day long. <laughs> all day short. But the wives have a way of their own, of finding out if we're all right. They inquire among each other, Have you seen my Jim? One says, No, says another, but Jack see him coming out of the station half an hour ago. Then she knows that her Jim's all right, and knows where to find him if she wants him. It's a sad thing when any of us have to carry bad news to a mate's wife. None of us likes that job. I remember when Jack Davidge was killed. None of us could face his poor missus with the news. She had several children, poor thing, and two of them, the youngest, was down with the fever. Down with the sickness. <laughs> and none of us could face her. So we didn't tell her. She doesn't know what <laughs> happened to Jack. Maybe she'll read this. <laughs> which, which paper did you say you're writing for? Oh, good, she gets this one. All right. Sorry, Mrs. Davidge. Uh... We got old Mrs. Berridge, Tom Berridge's mother, to break it to her. <laughs> Fucked up. Uh, alright. But, but she knew summit was the matter the minute the old woman went in. And afore she spoke a word, fell down like as if she was dead. She lay all night like that, and never heard from mortal lips until next morning that her Jack was killed. But she knew it in her heart. It's a pitch and toss kind of life, kind of a life, ours. And yet I never was nervous on an engine but once. I never think of my own life. Never was nervous but once, except for that time that you threw your stoker off and got him killed. He didn't throw his, the stoker jumped off. Well, told him to jump. And, and he almost jumped off, but he wasn't nervous. <laughs> wasn't nervous, just semi-suicidal. <laughs> He wasn't nervous. He knew exactly what needed to happen. He needed to jump ship, and then he didn't. Maybe he knew everything would be fine, and he is a murderer. 
Well, because if the train hadn't switched tracks last second and he had jumped and survived, then everyone else on the train would have died in the collision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going with he is actually like a, a mass serial killer, but he just never actually directly kills. He's just really good at planning it out in sneaky ways. Yeah, and convincing people to make the choice that will get them killed. That's my theory. I like it. Uh, And yet, I never was nervous on an engine but once. I never think of my own life. You go in for stake... You go in for staking that when you begin, and you get used to the risk. I never think of the passengers, either. The thoughts of an engine driver never go behind his engine. If he keeps his engine all right, the coaches behind will be all right, as far as the driver is concerned. But once I did think of the passengers. My little boy, Bill, was among them that morning. He was a poor little cripple fellow that we all loved more, or that we all loved more nor the others, because he was a cripple and so quiet and wise-like. He was going down to his aunt in the country, who was to take care of him for a while. We thought the country air would do him good. I did think there were lives behind me that morning. At least, I thought hard of one little life that was in my hands. There were twenty coaches on. My little bill seemed to me to be in every one of them. My hand trembled as I turned on the steam. I felt my heart thumping as we drew close to the pointsman's box. As we neared the junction, I was all in a cold sweat. At the end of the first fifty miles, I was nearly eleven minutes behind time. "'What's the matter with you?' this morning, my stoker asked. "'Did you have a drop too much last night?' "'Don't speak to me, Fred,' I said, "'till we get to Peterborough, and keep a sharp lookout. There's a good fellow.' I never was so thankful in my life as when I shut off steam to enter the station at Peterborough. Little Bill's aunt was waiting for him, and I saw her lift him out of the carriage. I called out to her to bring him to me, and I took him upon the engine and kissed him. Ah, twenty times, I should think. Making him in such a mess with grease and coal dust as you never saw. I was all right for the rest of the journey, and I do believe, sir, the passengers were safer after Little Bill was gone. It would never do, you see, for engine drivers to know too much or to feel too much. The end. (laughs) That was the longest ignorance is bliss quote ever. Wow. He only killed one person in that. Yeah. He talked about a couple other people who died. Yeah. But. Yeah. I think that story was uh, an excellent opening line followed by never quite living up to the opening line. (laughs) (laughs) I like it was. Story. Yeah. It was sort of a rambling monologue. Yeah. All right. So. I'm going to turn that into a musical. (laughs) (laughs) But it's still a one-man show. It's a one-man musical, yeah. Yeah. Or there there can be like, there can be two people, and the other person is the interviewer, and they don't have any lines. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) He gets the the orchestra going when he's in the field trying to conduct the grass, and that's how the music starts. Yes. And from then on, it's light opera. Love it. Um, you can have, oh, there could actually be like a whole chorus that don't sing. They just do kind of, they're just like, instead of set pieces, you have a chorus of dancers who like kind of, they are the train. They are the grass. So it is, it is a, it is a, um, one man opera slash ballet with a ballet ensemble. (laughs) Yes. That just takes the shape of the train and then when bad things happen, they like they do the the um, the silent scream face. Yes. I actually think this could be good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It'll run on alternating nights with Woodshop. Perfect. I was I was thinking Woodshop 
would just be, I was thinking like the length of a class. So it could just be act one, act two. Could be act one, act two. They are, we'd, we'd have to come up with a, um, how are, how are these two things connected? Everything's connected. After the engine driver kills seven people, he gives up being an engine driver and de- decides to teach shop. Perfect. Or maybe Bill, his crippled kid, becomes a shop teacher. All right. All right. Cool. I'm down. Um, All right. I think it's a plan. Jim's wife is the shop teacher. And so periodically through Woodshop the musical, she's just freaking out about where Jim is. (laughs) Oh, it doesn't doesn't have to be act one, act two. They can both be going on at the same time. It can be like a scene from this, from the engine driver, and then a scene of shop class. Inner cut? (laughs) Yeah. Or, or you divide the stage in half (laughs) and run them both simultaneously. Perfect. I see no flaws in any of these plans. And then you have that, that it's, it's the musical theater equivalent of that musical thing where it's, you're listening to one marching band leave as the other one's showing up. Yeah, Yeah. 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 I like it. Man. Talk about something that has no chance of being successful. Probably not, but I like it anyway. Yeah. The trick is we, 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 would need to, we would need to score both shows out in such a way that they have exactly the same run length. If they both end with just like a big held fermata note, then, you know, whoever gets there first can just hold the note. <laughs> <laughs> uh, excuse me. Yeah. Um, Steve, you're playing Jim in The Engine Driver. What's the issue? Well, my show is seven minutes shorter than their show. I can't hold a note for seven minutes. Looks like you lost a job. (laughs) Uh, Sing slower? I I don't know what to tell you, man. (laughs) Come on, you're playing an engine driver. It should be all about getting there when you're supposed to get there. Exactly. Love it. Well, this was strange and kind of idiotic. Yeah. Um, what did you think about that one, listeners? Did you enjoy that story? Story? That that train propaganda <laughs> film? <laughs> um Yeah, I don't know. I I felt um I was like I was engaged through the whole thing. I found it interesting. It just we got to the end and I kind of went, "Oh, that was it." All right. It kept waiting for the for it to lead into the story. Yeah. It what it felt like was one chapter from the Spoon River anthologies. Yeah. Yeah, just a character talking about his life. Um anyway, uh let us know what you thought about that one. I hope you enjoyed it, but if you didn't, that it's okay because next week is going to be a different story. Um and if you did enjoy it, please promote our upcoming musical. Woodshop slash the engine driver. Wood engine shop driver. <laughs> the wood engine shop driver. Which side of the stage <laughs> will toll up a bigger body count? <laughs> um, so uh, let us know what you thought. You can um, direct your complaints, uh, inquiries, praises, and sort of anything else you want to to Campfire Classics on any of the major, 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 any of the major social media places uh, or you can email us at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com dot com thank you you're welcome you should write us a jingle okay I mean you already have no I mean like an advertising jingle we already have a theme song okay got it I want an advertising jingle we can do that Um, maybe we can just take that one dot com (laughs) it's I can't remember what company that's for, but yeah, uh, probably defunct at this point. It's, yeah. I remember it from years ago. Most of those dot coms didn't survive. Uh, anyway, so do all of that. Email us. Tell us what you think. Um, and when you shoot us that email, please include somewhere in the body of the email or the subject of the email this week's secret passcode. Herated. <laughs> that's. H-O-O-R-A-Y-D-E-D. 
E D. Do your best. <laughs> Do your best. Try and figure it out. I have no idea. Um, and uh, this has been episode 99 of Campfire Classics. So thank you so much for tuning in. Next week, 99 episodes floating on the internet. Panic bells, yeah, everywhere. Everybody's getting wet. <laughs> Woo. You're right. welcome. You know it's that kind of podcast. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> welcome to Campfire Classics, where we get wet. Whoa. Um, yeah, but so next week will be episode 100, and it will feature uh, Heather's hopefully permanent or at very least long-term return to the podcast. Um, so... Uh, That'll be fun. Um, I think that's everything I've got. Craig, any parting words? Long live rock. And with that, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Long live rock. (laughs) 